0: And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespasses... Much more has the grace of God and the free gift of that grace through the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for a long time and here this morning we get to the actual death of Jesus. He cries out and gives up his spirit. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what happened. What happened at the cross of Jesus. I mean, we know he died, but what actually went down beyond his physical death, what else was going on there? To sum it up a lot. In that moment of his death, Everything changes. Life was altered. Existence was changed. Relationships were changed. Jesus' death is the fulfillment of a promise made by God thousands of years beforehand. And in this event, in Jesus' death, we find that Jesus suffered and died, not unwillingly, not unknowingly, but completely understanding that his death would achieve for all humanity the ability to have sins forgiven and a new life with God. Just as one bite of a fruit brought sin into the world through one man, one death would bring life and order and restore peace between God and man through the death of Jesus. So this morning that's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to pray and then we will jump into Mark 15. Um, Please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are good and you're good all the time. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would help us to understand, that you would help us to focus, that you would help us to, God, push away the distractions that we came in this morning with so that we can hear from you. You are always speaking, always communicating with us. Help us to listen, and help us to not just listen this morning, but listen and respond. God, as we study your word, help us to understand the parts that are hard to understand. Help us to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be rebuked where necessary. God, this is your word, living and active. This is your story playing out throughout history. And so as we come to your word this morning, help us to do that humbly. Help us to do that eager to hear and experience you. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up in 15, verse uh, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath... Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So I've kind of broken this down as we walk through this account. I've broken this down into three words, three ideas that kind of just helped me separate. We have the, we have the setup to what happens. We have the statement from Jesus, and then we have the sources afterwards. Um, so let's talk about the setup. We see the time markers throughout Mark 15. Uh, Mark has been giving us these pointers to show exactly how this day went down. If you scroll up, if you look up to 15, uh, verse 1, it says morning. Morning is 6 a.m. And then it says at it it, uh, 1525, it says the third hour Jesus was crucified. Third hour is 9 a.m. He's actually crucified. And then we see in verse 33 and 34, from the sixth hour to the nine, ninth hour there was darkness. So the sixth hour is noon, the ninth hour is 3 p.m., darkness in the land. Now, according to when this happened, seasonally speaking, this was not a solar eclipse. This was especially not one that lasted three hours. This was a supernatural kind of darkness. This was something intentional by God. And you can on your own uh, when you're studying the Bible this week, if you want to do a word study, you can look at darkness in the Old Testament. And you can see that throughout the Old Testament, God uses darkness during the daytime to symbolize uh, his wrath, his judgment, his anger toward things. The one that I do want to point out, though, is if you go to Exodus 10 and 11, you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 10 through 12, we have the account of the ten plagues that happen, right? The Israelites, God's people, are slaves in Egypt. God has now sent, uh, sent Moses to go and lead his people out of slavery. Pharaoh says no, and so over the course of weeks at a time, God sends ten plagues that would show Pharaoh who was really in charge. And the ninth plague that comes is darkness. The ninth plague is darkness. Egypt is covered in darkness for three days. And it's that plague that precedes the tenth plague, the final one, which is the death of the firstborn of every person. Every family member, has their firstborn will die. And the reason there are thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time, the reason this city is crowded beyond compare is that they are celebrating the Passover. They are celebrating that in this 10th plague, when God said that the firstborn of every family would die, he also tells God's people, he says, if you will take a lamb that is without blemish and kill it, take the blood and paint it on your doorposts, when God comes, he will see the blood and he will pass over. That judgment will pass over that house and there will be no death other than that lamb in that house. The death of the lamb will suffice. The Israelites put the blood of the lamb on their door and their children were saved. But all throughout Egypt cries in the night of family members as they found their firstborn dead. And this is the plague that softens Pharaoh's heart and he sends the Israelites out. They are free from slavery and they head to the promised land. Here now, thousands of years later, darkness covers the land which precedes the true and perfect spotless lamb. The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world will die to free us from slavery to sin. That is the setting that we find ourselves. And then we see Jesus cry out in verse 34. At the ninth hour, he says with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark's gospel, this is the first time Jesus has spoken since he said just a few words to Pilate. This is, uh, as referred to, it's the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. He is quoting Psalm 22, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's interesting to see that when Jesus speaks here, when he cries out and he quotes Psalm 22, he does so not quoting Hebrew, not quoting Greek. He quotes and he speaks it in Aramaic. Aramaic was his speaking language. That's what he talked. That's what he spoke with. When Jesus cries out in this moment of pain and exhaustion, he does so not with the Hebrew version that he has memorized, but he internalizes it into his own native tongue. When Jesus is in this painful, lonely place, what comes out of him is scripture. If I take this can and I pour it out, what's going to come out? Coke. No trick questions here. If I take this tube that says Colgate on it and I squeeze it from the bottom, not from the middle because I'm not a Cretan, what's going to come out? Toothpaste. Right. Why? Because that's what was put in it. When you are squeezed, when you are in pain, when you are suffering, when you are being poured out, even in good, in service for others, what's coming out of you? What have you filled yourself up with that comes pouring out in trouble or in pain or even in service? What came flowing out of Christ was scripture, was God's word. What's coming out of you? And the only way for scripture to come pouring out is if you put it in in the first place. If you are taking in scripture, if you are meditating on it, memorizing it, if you are in scripture so much that your natural reaction to any and every situation is to come out with God's word. It's why community groups are so important. Like I said, we're studying Galatians, but we're also learning how to study the book of Galatians, how to study God's word so that we can better invest and take it in. What comes flowing out of Jesus in this painful moment is the word of God. Specifically, he's quoting the beginning of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, a psalm that speaks in great detail to the events that Jesus experiences in the crucifixion. We talked about it last week that some of the phrases and the words that Mark uses to describe what Jesus goes through are pulled pretty much directly from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And interestingly enough, it's the psalm that says that most scholars who have studied the psalms, they, they try to figure out how does Psalm 22 fit into David's life? Like, what is it that he's writing in response to? And nobody really has an answer. Because he talks so explicitly about what's coming, about this execution, about this crucifixion, that most people are pretty much agree that this is David just writing prophetically about what's to come. And that psalm begins with a feeling of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in vindication. Vindication for the righteous one who suffers. It speaks to the faithfulness and the power of God. When Jesus is in this painful moment, in his final moments before death, he is dwelling on a psalm that, yes, speaks of pain and suffering, but followed by deliverance and vindication and God's victory and goodness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of a few things Jesus says on the cross, and I want to talk a little bit about this phrase. We see from this phrase that the relationship between Jesus and God the Father has been altered in some way. Because, note, when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, he's not crying out, Abba, Abba. In the garden, it was, Dad, Abba, help. Dad, I need you. And he's crying out from that intimate place. But here it is Eloi, which is El, which is God Almighty, God of power, God of strength, God all powerful. And yes, it is still my God. There is still a relationship there, but the intimacy has been changed. Something is different. And so we have to ask Has Jesus experienced separation from his father? Is he here experiencing a broken relationship with God the Father? Has the sin of all humanity, the fact that he's taken all sin from all time, has it, is it so bad? Is it so wicked? Is it so much that it actually broke the perfect, holy, eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son? I don't think it can. I think the relationship has been altered, but this relationship is not broken. Because God is a Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who he is. You cannot stop him from being that. You cannot stop God from being a Trinity and still have him as God. To break the Trinity, to break this perfect holy relationship, even for a moment, is for God to stop being who he is. And furthermore... To say that there is an amount of sin, even if it is all sin for all time, even if it's every sin from Adam and Eve in the garden biting that fruit, all the way up to the cross, all the way to humanity, to say all sin for all time, even that to say that there is some quantifiable amount of sin that would in some way cause dysfunction or brokenness or affect the Trinity in a negative way is to say that God is not all-powerful is to say that there is some amount of evil that can hurt God. And we know that's just not true. God is all-powerful. He is in control of all things. Satan is subject to God. He is the creator and sustainer of all existence. He is the Almighty. There is no amount of sin that can stop or break God. The Trinity is intact at all times. So what do we do with this, where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I started this sermon by quoting Romans 5 which talks about the first Adam and then the new Adam that through one sin and death enter into the world and through one righteousness will enter if you go back to Genesis and you go back to Genesis 3 everything is perfect everything is good perfect relationship between God and humanity between humanity itself between humanity and creation there is humans want and need for nothing everything is good Genesis 3 happens Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve rebel against God. Perfection that is everywhere has now been severed everywhere until Jesus can come to fix it. In that moment, sin increases in the world by 200%. But after they eat that fruit, in Genesis 3 It says they heard, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Sin enters the world for the first time. God does not run. He does not ignore it. He does not hide from it. He does not turn his face from it. God goes walking and looking for it. God shows up. They heard him walking. God is in their presence. And he provides for them hope. He provides them a promise that one day Satan will be defeated. Sin will be defeated by the Messiah. The relationship between God and man that has just been severed will be restored one day. And then he continues to care for them in their sin. He removes them from the garden so they don't live forever trapped in sin. And he clothes them. He gives them the first animal sacrifices made to clothe Adam and Eve. He cares for them in their brokenness. He provides a way for them. And this is throughout history how God has interacted with his people. God has provided for his people even in the midst of their rebellion. The Old Testament is really the story of God who is good and holy and perfect and he has a good relationship with his people. Everything's good. They're worshiping him. They're trusting him. They need for nothing because he's got them. And then through a very different ways, they choose sin in various forms. In idolatry, and selfishness, they choose all kinds of different forms of sin. And then God's people walk away from him. And then God sends judges and prophets and priests. He sends people to say, God wants you to come back to him. If you continue in this way, there will be judgment. There will be destruction. Come back to him. And eventually they repent. They're in a good relationship with God again until the next time they rebel until the next time they screw up. God throughout history has been dealing with rebellious generation after rebellious generation and has chosen not to give up on us, but to give us time and to call us back to himself. So now here at the cross, where all humanity is being saved, where the very work of God, the very work that he initiated, the very work that Jesus willingly submits to, is happening. To say that God would turn away or that God hated Jesus? No. Jesus is forever the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased. He is the one who is bringing reconciliation and redemption through his submission and willingness to go to the cross. He is showing obedience to the will of the Father. So again, what do we do where Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? I think it matters, and it might be semantics, but it matters on what do we mean by forsaken. Because there is an abandonment here. Because for Jesus here at the cross, as he suffers in this way, there is no reprieve. There is no restoring. There is no angel to minister to him. There is no dove descending from the heavens. There is no voice of the Father declaring his love for the Son. There's just Jesus. One scholar puts it that Jesus' cry of forsakenness is a cry of disorientation as the familiar comfort of the presence of God is withdrawn and his enemies close in on him. God has indeed forsaken Jesus to a degree to go through this alone, to suffer on his own, to experience this on his own, alone and vulnerable, suffering without the presence of the Father. But this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a question where Jesus is expecting an answer. He knows exactly why he's going through this. He knows exactly why he's feeling this forsakenness. He's doing it for the sins of humanity. He's doing it for you and for me. But it does not change just because he understands it, just because he knows it does not change the total vulnerability of the abandonment he experiences in this moment. He is experiencing a grief and burden and pain and disconnection from the Father that no one, not even he, has faced before. And in this, in the events that he experiences physically, emotionally, spiritually, we are forever reminded of what it took to set us free from the slavery of sin. Sin is not minor. It is not that you slipped up it is not a mistake. It is not, I just stumbled a little. It is not, yeah, I sinned a little bit, but it's better than it used to be, so it's, that's fine. No, your sin caused Christ to experience an untold grief and loss. Your sin put Christ on the cross. All of our sins put Christ on the cross. We all have equal share in the death of Jesus, in the torture of Jesus. You are not any less guilty than the person sitting next to you. You are not any less guilty than the person you think of is the worst. If you think, well, what about, insert, this horrible dictator, terrorist, whatever, I'm clearly better than that person. That thought in itself shows, no, you're not. We are all equally responsible. The grace and forgiveness experienced through Jesus was paid for at a price. He was the price. What he experienced, what he suffered through mattered. It was costly. Jesus takes on the punishment for the sins of the world in our place, and he does so completely alone. He takes on a bitterness and death that no one could possibly understand. And so in this moment, he cries out to God. But as we have seen throughout Mark, the people hear the words of Jesus, and again they misunderstand. We see in verse 35, Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. There was a superstition at the time because the prophet um, Elijah never actually dies, right? God sends a chariot to come and he's taken up into heaven and Elijah doesn't die. So there was this superstition that for those who were suffering, those who were in pain, you could cry out to Elijah, you could pray to Elijah, and Elijah would come swooping down on that sweet chariot and rescue you from your pain. Maybe they misheard Jesus, or maybe they just don't understand what he's saying. But they think Elijah's going to show up, and so someone goes to get him some sour wine. It was a drink, there was a, a bucket, basically, of sour wine set up. It was set for the Roman soldiers to quench their thirst from all of the hard work of torturing people they'd been doing. And so someone gets some and apparently gets permission to put some on a reed and give it to Jesus to let him drink, to help sustain him, to keep him awake and alert enough so they could see if Elijah would come down. And we see in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. We talked a lot last week about what crucifixion is, and it was a torturous, exhausting way to die. It could take days at a time. It wrecked your whole body. Your organs and muscles would shut down and give up. It was not a strong or noble or peaceful way to die. It was painful and hard all the way to the end. But when Jesus dies, he cries out with a loud voice. He yelled out. He still has the strength and ability to cry out. And if you read the other gospel accounts, you know he said a lot of other things on the cross. There's seven different statements. He has some conversations with people on the cross. In the midst of this suffering and agony, Jesus still has the wherewithal to have conversations. The way he died was unusual and unique. It says in our, in our passage, the Roman guard is taken aback. When word gets to Pilate that Jesus is already dead within just a few hours, he is once again shocked and surprised by Jesus at how quickly he has died. It was against the norm of crucifixion. But none of this should come as a shock to us. He has already told us, no one takes my life from me. He lays it down of his own accord. He alone has the authority to lay it down, and he alone has the authority to take it up again. He is in complete control, even in his death. And when he dies, we see the direct results of what it means that God himself would die on the cross in place of sinners. We see in verse 38 and 39 that a curtain is torn and a centurion speaks out. It says the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was a thick, think like if you go to see a play and you think like stage curtains. It is this thick, heavy curtain about 30 feet high. It separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the place where God's presence dwelt. No one was allowed in there except one day, one guy was allowed to go in there on the Day of Atonement. The high priest could go in there. After he had done a series of rituals and sacrifices to prepare himself and cleanse himself, he was allowed into the Holy of Holies one day a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of all people for the forgiveness of their sins. That priest and all the things he goes through, that one guy on behalf of all the people offering a sacrifice, everything about that points to Jesus. That's a whole other sermon. And the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom declares all of that, this separation, that's no longer needed. There is no separation anymore. In Christ, we can go boldly to the throne of God. There is no longer a need to be separated. We don't need an earthly human intercessor. Our intercessor is Christ. There is no separation. The sacrifices don't need to be made anymore because the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has done just that. Sin has been paid for and dealt with. The death that sin demands has happened through Jesus at the cross. All are welcome to the presence of God regardless of who you are and you can find grace and forgiveness and hope. And immediately after this happens, immediately after the tearing of this curtain happens, the reality of that sets in and is emphasized in the words of the centurion. A Gentile guard, someone outside the family of God, someone who was directly involved with the killing of Jesus speaks and declares, truly this man was the son of God this outsider speaks based on what he has observed of jesus in his suffering what he has observed of jesus in his death and it leads him to declare who jesus truly and actually is at the time this phrase son of god was found on money it was found on the coins but it wasn't about jesus it was about caesar the role of caesar was that you were the son of a deity It's what Caesar referred to himself. There was an entire cult built around worshiping Caesar as a god, but this Roman soldier who has only known that idolatry of the Roman world declares it is this beaten and battered son of a carpenter who is the actual son of God. This statement from the centurion, this is the gospel played out. That those who are by nature outside of the family of God, those who are enemies of God, actively rebelling against him, can experience Jesus and know who he truly is. No one, not even the soldiers who killed him, are outside of the grace and forgiveness and love of God. He was not just some guy. He was not just a good man or teacher or rabbi. He was the son of God come to earth to die for the sins of the world. And in doing so, give all people access to God. We see in verse 40 and 41 a group of women who were there. They they saw everything happen. They came up to Jerusalem with Jesus. They saw him die. They saw where he was buried. And that will become very crucial because it is this group of women who will go to the tomb on Sunday morning and find Jesus is gone. They will be the ones who leave the tomb and declare that Jesus is alive. Their accounts are not secondhand; They are eyewitnesses, experiential witnesses to everything that has happened, which will add much-needed credibility to their statements, which we'll talk about next week. In the death of Jesus, God, who created everything, steps into the humanity he created, not only to teach us great great truths, Not only to do some miracles, but he has come to die. He enters and lives the life to the fullest and the main objective to get to this hillside on this Friday to be strung up on a cross. And it is there on the cross that he experiences something brand new to him. The absence of the presence of God. He will fulfill his ultimate goal and task alone without the comfort, the encouragement, or the presence of his Father. He is not hated but he is loved by his Father in this moment, but there is an absence. And that's why it had to be him. Because he alone could suffer in this way. He alone could resolve to endure this gut wrenching pain, both physically and spiritually. And all of it the suffering, the pain, the loneliness, the death none of it was a surprise to him. None of it was a shock. None of it was outside of the will or plan of God. Jesus knew fully and completely what he was walking into. And he did it for the same reason he was sent in the first place out of compassion out of justice, out of love. All of those things are mixed and mingled and presented for us at the cross. God the Father, full of love and justice, sends God the Son to carry out the one sacrifice that can atone for the sins of humanity. And by the power of God the Holy Spirit, he accomplishes this goal in a gruesome and exhausting and ugly way. The first Adam brought sin into the world and death and chaos jesus the new and better adam through his death defeats sin and brings order to the chaos he suffers he dies so that we don't have to he cries out in pain and disorientation and abandonment so that you and i never have to i pray this morning that you would know not just facts and figures but know experientially understand the weight your sin carries, the cost it was for the forgiveness and grace of God. That you would know and understand that God knows you and made you and loves you. And may his love and what the sacrifice Christ did on the cross, may it always remind you of the love of the Father and spur us on to show love and grace to others just as we have experienced. I started us in Romans 5, and I want to close us in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the love, the justice, the compassion that you would send us a way to redeem and restore this relationship that has been broken by sin. That you would do all of the work. That God would do everything that we just need to respond. And even in the, having the ability to respond is you doing the work. God, you are good and you are for us and not against us, and you showed it in sending Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the cross, for as ugly and messed up and uncomfortable as it may make us, there's life and there's hope and there's grace found there. God, we are amazed at it. We are overwhelmed by it. Lord, let us never take that for granted. God, I pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their faith in Jesus for their forgiveness of sins, for their new life, for their grace, that they would do so this morning, that they would come and taste and see that you are good, to know that you are for them and not against them, that you are welcoming them into your family. And for those who know you, Lord, help us to never forget this, to never lose sight, to never see what Christ did as trivial or ordinary. That we would forever be reminded of the costly grace that we have received and let that reality spur us on to be the lights of the world you have called us to be. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. Lord, help us to live in response to this reality. Amen.